Well, once again, I'd like to say it's good to see you, but I can't. So, uh, but I'm glad that you are uh, tuning in. I uh, came in yesterday thinking I was going to have to cut this sermon uh, somewhat short, um, but we don't have a baptism today and we don't have the Lord's Supper, so you're going to get the whole thing. And uh, I know that's okay because you're sitting at home on the couch in your pajamas, uh, sipping hot chocolate and eating cinnamon rolls. So uh, I don't feel bad about this at all. Anyways, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, We're also starting the book of Joshua. And since about an underdog moving into the promised land, I wanted to show everyone my new hat. Hopefully you can see that well. So I'm getting heckled from some strange people here. Anyways, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. It's the sixth book of the Bible. It comes right after Deuteronomy. And we'll be starting there. Uh, Because it is a little bit longer today, we're going to go through the text sort of as we go through uh, the sermon. So... Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to a new book, a new passage, a new story, a story that's very old but amazingly current. We pray that we would learn its lessons and make them part of our lives. Thank you that today we begin four months of learning from Joshua, the protege of Moses, as he brings us the eyewitness account of entering the promised land. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, being strong and courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so we pray, speak through Joshua 1 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. And amen. Um, Most of you who are baseball fans, uh, as I am, uh, know who Cal Ripken Jr. is. The longtime shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles is probably best known for breaking Lou Gehrig's record of 2,131 consecutive baseball games. Eventually, he reached 2,600 and 32 consecutive games, which means that Cal Ripken never missed a day of work for more than 17 years. It is an amazing athletic achievement that will probably never be duplicated in modern baseball. One of the things that made Ripken's feat so attractive to everyone is the fact that he's considered a genuinely good guy, clearly a man with an amazing work ethic. Now, Cal Ripken announced his retirement in 2001, saying he would retire at the end of the season. So that year, he was voted in as the starting third baseman for the All-Star Game at Safeco Field in Seattle on July 10, 2001. In a tribute to Ripken's achievements and his stature in the game, the starting shortstop, Alex Rodriguez, insisted on exchanging positions with Ripken for the first inning so that Ripken could play shortstop as he had for most of his career. The standing ovation that Ripken received lasted so long 
the start of the game was delayed. The move also allowed him to claim the record for the most all-star appearances at shortstop. In the third inning, he made his first plate appearance, and he was greeted with another standing ovation. And then he homered off the first pitch from Chan Ho Park. Cal Ripken Jr. ended his that game with uh, all-star MVP honors, becoming one of four players in baseball history with multiple all-star game MVP awards. At the same time, he was the only player uh, named all-star game MVP in two different decades. Cal Ripken finished his career as a 19-time all-star, was twice named league MVP, he won eight Silver Slugger awards, two gold gloves, and was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. He is considered a legendary ball player. Now, in light of Cal Ripken's amazing career, let me ask you if you know the name of the guy who replaced him at shortstop. You can think about that for a moment. If you were here, I'd have you call it out but I doubt that anybody probably other than Frank Pugh uh, knows who this is. He was a triple-A shortstop who was groomed by the Baltimore Orioles to replace Cal Ripken Jr. He would have to replace a legend, a baseball giant, all the time knowing that Cal Ripken's going to be a hard act to follow. Anyone? His name was Manny Alexander. He played about five years for Baltimore, but he could never live up to the pressure of having to follow Cal Ripken Jr. Eventually, he became a journeyman infielder, uh, playing for five more teams over the next 10 years. Now, as I read that story, I began to wonder if Joshua ever felt like Manny Alexander. Joshua had been groomed for years to replace Moses. And if ever a legend was, Moses was it. Giver of the law, the man who met with God in such a way that his face shone, the leader of Israel for more than four decades. Moses was irreplaceable. However, when you get to our text today, Joshua 1, you discover that Moses has died. The people of God are still in the wilderness, and they've been there for 40 years. The people of God are encamped on the eastern side of the Dead Sea on the plains of Moab, just at the point where they're about to enter at last the promised land of Canaan. The promises of God have yet to be fulfilled. So where are we in the story so far? Joshua and the Israelites are on the verge of something big. The previous generation of God's people, the children of Israel, had been rescued from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They'd seen miraculous events, amazing signs in the wilderness, but at the point where they were about to enter the promised land, fear had gotten the better of them. They stopped trusting God. They rejected his promises of faithfulness, and they forfeited their opportunity to take their inheritance, the promised land. And that generation died in the wilderness. All that time, the Israelites were led by Moses. And for most of that time, his second in command was a young man named Joshua. 
You may remember that uh, back in the book of Numbers, there were 12 spies that were sent into the land. And of those 12, 10 said, oh, it's too hard. Only two came back and said, this is good. We can do it. God is faithful. He'll enable us. One of those was Joshua and the other was Caleb. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we read that Moses has died and that Joshua, Moses' second in command, is the new leader of the Israelites. Joshua is the one, not Moses, who is going to lead the people into the promised land. How's Joshua going to do it? Would he even be able to do it? The reasons they had for uh, the fears back when they checked out the land 40 years ago were all still there. The land was still frightening. There's still a big river to cross. There's still people who are big and scary and live in heavily fortified walled cities with strong defensive systems. So what you see is this wandering people set to engage a mostly urbanized, settled, and strong population, which has been in the land for centuries. Imagine facing all of that. Such a scenario would, on a human level, cause them to lose heart easily. This is how um, Deuteronomy describes Moses. Remember, Moses is the one who's always led the people. And Deuteronomy 34 says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land. And that's a pretty impressive summary of who Moses was. But now he's gone. Talk about a hard act to follow. No wonder Joshua is scared. How is he going to do what Moses, the great servant of the Lord, had failed to do? Well, that brings us up in the story to the beginning of the book of Joshua. And the first nine verses provide a short summary of the whole book, the four major sections of the book. And we're going to spend most of our time in those first nine verses this morning. First, verse 2, we see that God commands Joshua to cross the Jordan. And Israel does this in chapters 1 through 5. Second, in verses 2 and 3, Israel is to take the land given by God. And this is the uh, content of chapters 5 through 12. Third, in verse 4, we have the distribution of the land is assumed, settling in the land. This is accomplished in chapters 13 to 21. And then fourth, in verses 7 through 9, Joshua is urged to covenant obedience according to the law given by Moses. And this is the focus of the book's epilogue, the end, which details the people's ongoing service to God, chapter 22, Joshua's farewell address, chapter 23, and the renewal of the covenant in chapter 24. But all of it begins with one of the great themes of the book of Joshua, and that's God's promises. And if you have printed out the outline from the website for today, that's the first blank there in your bulletin, God's promises. Think about that, promises. If you say the word once, it carries a note of excitement and, and expectation. 
But if you say it twice, all of a sudden it begins to produce overtones of pessimism. Yeah, yeah, promises, promises. That's what the cynic says. We've heard it all before. And if you think about it, promises mean very little these days, or so it seems. Politicians build their platforms and they campaign on promises that, to be honest, no one really expects them to keep. Every four years, a candidate promises to bring about the change the country needs. And yet the voting public takes it all with a big grain of salt as the cynicism of our nation grows by leaps and bounds. And yet even though promises don't fare well in the attitude of many people in the public arena, they still fill an important role in our individual lives. Making a promise has the power to change a person forever. No one can remain the same after pledging till death do us part. No soldier can raise his or her hand and vow to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and walk away unchanged. These promises are pacts, they're covenants we make, and in turn, these promises make us. And so in the sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua, promises take center stage. Generations earlier, God promised Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan as a possession for his offspring. You find that in Genesis 15. However, Abraham had no descendants. He was an old man past his prime. He had no real prospects of having children, and yet a son was born, Genesis 21. And to that son, Isaac, two sons were born, Esau and Jacob, Genesis 25. Now, Jacob fathered 12 sons. And through a chain of events recorded in the uh, later chapters of Genesis, he and all of his extended family found themselves living not in the promised land, but instead in exile in Egypt. And there they remained for four hundred years. And while God was clearly keeping his promise to enlarge Abraham's family and make them as numerous as the sand on the seashore, Genesis 22, where was the land? What had become of that promise? See, the Israelites had become slaves in Egypt. And yet God, in his faithfulness, delivered them from bondage to bring them to this land that they longed for for so long. They experienced his great power. They witnessed the plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They ate the uh, daily manna. And yet fear and unbelief kept them from taking possession of the promised land. Israel's lack of faith destined the nation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that entire generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, had passed away. Numbers 14. Israel found themselves delayed from entering the land year after year after year. Promises, promises. And Israel's wandering in the desert had brought them uh, from the Sinai Peninsula to the plains of Moab. East of the Jordan, Moses delivered a series of sermons preserved for us in the book of Deuteronomy to spiritually prepare the nation for what was about to happen. 
For four centuries, Israel had possessed the promises originally given to Abraham regarding the land. But decade after decade, century after century, the promise had gone unrealized. As Joshua waited to enter Canaan, the promise concerning the land had been repeated over and over and over again for all of those hundreds of years. And that was a tremendous factor weighing on the people uh, emotionally, theologically, and practically. Can you imagine the impact Joshua's words now have on the people as they stand looking across the Jordan River? Within three days, the great promises were about to be fulfilled. They're poised on the eastern shore of the Jordan, and still, the conquest of Canaan looks impossible. How can a wandering group of shepherds overthrow a country of fortified cities? So the answer to that dilemma unfolds in the book of Joshua, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look there. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God commissions Joshua to do three things to lead the people into the land, to defeat the enemies that they would face in those fortified cities, and, which contain all of the uh, various Canaanite tribes in the land, and to claim uh, their inheritance of the land. And God, if you think about it, he could have chosen some supernatural means to accomplish all those things. He could have uh, sent one of his powerful angels, but he's chosen a person like us. And he promised to give that person the power he'd need to get the job done. And God's encouragement to Joshua comes in the form of promises. God has given a Joshua a threefold task to perform, and so he gives him three promises to go with each one of those responsibilities. So first, in verses 2 and 3, he promises that they'll cross the Jordan and enter the land. Second, in verse 5, he promises that they will defeat the enemies who confront them. And then third, end of verse 5, he promises that no one will be able to stand up to him because the Lord will always be with Joshua. These promises come to us originally in Deuteronomy. They're the exact same promises that God gave to Moses. God's not going back on his word or breaking any of his promises. We read them in Deuteronomy 11. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon 
and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea, no one shall be able to stand against you. And it struck me as I'm reading this, that while God tells Joshua what he's going to do, he never gives Joshua any explanation as to how he's going to accomplish these things. And we as God's people have to learn to live on promises and not on explanations, to walk by faith and not by sight. As for Joshua, so for us. When we trust God's promises and step out by faith, we can be sure that the Lord will give the practical, physical directions when we need them. So let's look a little bit more at these promises. If Israel obeyed the Lord, God promised that he would defeat those nations through their efforts in warfare. But he warned his people not to compromise with the enemy in any way. They might win a battle, but if they deviated from what God demanded, they would lose the ultimate victory that God intended for them. In the middle of that calling to battle and the promise that the battle would be won, there is another amazing, wonderful promise of God's presence at the end of verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God's commitment of his presence to always be with us is a powerful encouragement, and it never changes. God made the same promise to Jacob, Genesis 28. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In Deuteronomy 31, God made the identical promise to Joshua. Now he's giving it to him again. One day that promise is going to be repeated to a fearful Gideon hiding in a wine press. David will repeat that promise to his son Solomon. It will be repeated again to the Jewish exiles returning from Babylon to their homeland. Why is it so important? Because God's promises always precede God's commands. God's promises precede God's commands, verses 6 through 9. Can you imagine what it would have been like to follow Moses as the leader of God's people? Joshua is a different guy. He was content to serve under Moses. He was happy to be under his authority. He was jealous for the honor of Moses. Whenever Moses' authority was challenged, it was Joshua who went up and got after the challengers. He was glad for the recognition to go to Moses. When Ben Franklin left as the ambassador to France, Thomas Jefferson was sent as the new ambassador. And upon arrival, he went to the French Minister of Foreign Affairs to pay his respects. And the minister said, you replaced uh, Monsieur Franklin. To which Jefferson said, sir, I succeed him. No one can replace him. Wise words. Joshua was not another Moses. Joshua is not supposed to be another Moses. And yet he's God's choice. Let's put it in a different way. Joshua could not be Moses II. He had to be Joshua I. And had he tried to be Moses II, he would have failed. He had to be who God had called him to be. So when it comes time for Joshua to assume this position, 
How do you think Joshua felt? Do you think he was confident? Do you think he was excited and energized for the occasion? Or was he intimidated by the size of the task? Was he overwhelmed by the loss of Moses? We don't really know. What we do know is what the Lord told him. The promise that the people will trust Joshua's leadership and that the land will get divided up. Starting at verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua had seen Moses lead the people for 40 years through the wilderness while they complained and griped and rebelled and gossiped. And now Joshua is going to lead the sons and daughters of those complainers. They were, by and large, a much more disciplined, a much more God-honoring people, but it's still a fearful task. And God told Joshua to be strong and very courageous because he would have to obey God's law. It takes courage to obey God when everyone else is going astray. It takes courage to obey God and speak the truth about biblical ethics, especially when so many in our society are willing to call good evil and evil good. Today, it takes courage to continue in the faith when so many in our society think that our faith is the problem, not the solution. But it all starts with a clear command. Be strong and courageous. This imperative, this command that God issues, this call to courageous, obedient leadership is based on the absolute certainty of God's promise. The grounds for whatever courage Joshua might have are not in himself. They're in the powerful encouragement that God will be with his people as they enter the promised land and as they trust Joshua's leadership. The enemy will be defeated. Israel will possess the land. God will keep his promise to Abraham that his descendants will inherit the land. And now having been commissioned to lead the Israelites into the land and having been promised the presence of God for the task, Joshua begins by telling the officers about God's provisions. It's the third blank, God's provisions, verses 10 through 15. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then starting in verse 12, he says a different group of people now. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, 
the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that God gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. <coughs> Verse 15, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So what's going on here? First, Joshua spoke to the officer, officers and told them to prepare. These officers were chosen to serve under Moses as leaders of the various tribes. And with a military campaign about to begin, their leadership would be vital. But when Joshua speaks to them, his first words are not military strategy. Instead, he tells them to prepare for the journey into the land the Lord was giving them, indicating Joshua's confidence in the task ahead. He was certain the Lord would keep his promise to give Canaan to the Israelites. And while they would have to fight to take it, Joshua was so sure of the victory that he didn't think instructions for battle were the first thing he needed to say. Instead, he told the people they'd move into the land, speaking as if it were already theirs. Because in light of God's sovereign faithfulness, it was. Now, the officers mentioned in verses 10 and 11 don't include all of Israel. For verses 12 to 15 record a second speech of Joshua. It says to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And that's because the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh had already received their land, their territories. These two and a half tribes had settled east of the Jordan River with Moses' permission when they agreed to fight with the rest of the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites west of the Jordan, all the way back in Numbers 32. Joshua is reminding them of their commitment because in order to defeat the people of Canaan, Israel would have to be united as God's people. Verses 16 to 18, God's people. And so the next time we find the words, be strong and courageous, is at the end of this chapter. After Joshua had heard from the Lord, he delivered the message to the people. And they responded, starting at verse 16. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Did they obey Moses in all things? Not even close. But that's what they're saying here. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So who in your life is facing daunting circumstances or overwhelming trials, the kind that would tempt them to doubt God's promises? Who around you needs to hear, be strong and courageous? Who do you know that needs to be reminded that God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I am with you always to the end of the age? 
remind them of God's promises, and then call them to follow him with strength and courage. By God's power, encourage them to be free from fear by depending on the promises of God. You know, as I've considered all that we've endured this past year, and I've spoken with pastors around the country, people from our church, the one thing I keep coming back to is how much we're in need of encouragement. Folks are exhausted, disappointed, frustrated by what it feels um, to be this endless barrage of discouraging news and events. Parents are tired. Pastors are tired. Singles feel lonely. Kids are disconnected from their friends. Seniors are isolated. And we need so little encouragement for our hearts to be lifted up. And I know it's hard to give it when you're operating in a deficit of it, but we must try. Find someone you're grateful for and let them know. Encouragement isn't the same as flattery. Be specific about the ways you've been loved, you've been served, you've been encouraged by their words or their actions. They need to hear it and you need to give it. And strangely enough, encouraging others encourages you. We seem to be made for it. So let's be about it. The people of Israel are facing an overwhelming task at the beginning of the book of Joshua. God has commanded they cross the Jordan River and capture the land of promise, but it's full of foes. And yet God hasn't left the people by themselves to carry out their duty. He has equipped Israel to stand up to their enemies by promising to be with them as they enter the land. He raises up strong leadership in the person of Joshua, and he gives the people his word to stand on and to live by. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, one big encouragement and then one big caution. Encouragement first. At the outset of the book of Joshua, we ought to be struck by the unity of God's people as they prepare to face the enemy. We see this real unity of the people as the eastern tribes prepare to lead the troops into Canaan. RTS professor uh, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on Joshua says, one can detect implications here for the doctrine and practice of the church. Unity among God's people is no idle luxury. Similar to what the Apostle Paul encourages us to be, Ephesians 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The unity displayed in the book of Joshua is actually short-lived because it's followed by the period of the Judges. In which, Judges 21, we read, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The church today undergoes similar seasons of unity and disunity. And now the church appears to be in a time of fragmentation. We have to do everything we can to focus everyone on Christ so that we can remain united in him. That's the encouragement, unity. They were unified in what they were doing and focused on the Lord and his promises. But I also said there was a caution. And it's this, four times in Joshua 1, we read the command, be strong and courageous. 
And how often sermons on Joshua 1 urge us to this kind of response. But the inherent danger of that encouragement is because far too often we are much more like weak Israel without strength or courage than we are like Joshua. The exhortation to strength and courage can suggest that we simply need to try harder and screw up our courage. And we create this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps moralism that binds the heart in something other than the good news of the gospel. It's true that Joshua and Israel needed to do things to respond and to act if they were to be strong and courageous. But the strength doesn't simply come because they drum it up out of some inner well of strength and resolve. It comes from God. It comes from his promises, his presence, his instruction, his enabling. God is the source of the strength and courage to which Joshua is called. Now, in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, they suggest a way of reading these commands of strength and courage. In those chapters, the author works uh, with Joshua, typologically, mean looking at Joshua, but also looking ahead to Jesus. And he looks at Joshua, who's able to bring Israel into rest in the land. Israel ultimately fails to enter that rest fully because of disobedience. And because of that failure, the promise of rest still stands, still awaits God's people. We read that in Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It is now Jesus who brings God's people into the Sabbath rest of life in Christ. In this typology, Jesus is the true and better Joshua. And such a reading provides a faithful way to address the inherent difficulty of all of these exhortations to strength and courage. In all of Scripture, there's only one who has ever fully heeded God's command to Joshua. Only Jesus has shown utter obedience to the Father. Only he has fully kept the book of the law, not turning aside from it to the left or right, but meditating on it day and night. It is his obedience that enables uh, him to bring God's people into Sabbath rest, as the book of Hebrews argues. Only Jesus is found to be fully strong and courageous. And in this, he is the true and better Joshua, always strong and courageous in his obedience, in his faithfulness, and thus he's fully able to bring God's people into a new promised land and provide them rest. This becomes good news for God's people who want to walk with courage and strength today because we're now identified with Christ, baptized into him. We've been given his spirit. Our lives have been taken up into his, and it is his faithfulness, strength, and courage from which we live. When we're called to undertake those things that are difficult and challenging, we don't simply need to drum up uh, strength and courage out of our own meager resources. We've been brought into union with Christ, and any work we now do is in his power and by his spirit. The action might be ours, but the strength is not. It comes from the one fully able to command it and us, Jesus as the true and better Joshua.
the one who leads his people and equips them beyond their ability to the fulfillment of great things. It is precisely in our weakness that he is strong and courageous, able to bring us into a new promised land and provide rest. Just as God made a promise to be with Joshua, so God made an identical promise to us as his people today. The Gospel of Matthew opens with the promise of Emmanuel, Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew concludes all the way at the end, Matthew 28, with Jesus telling us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew opens and closes with a promise to be with us. Hebrews reminds us of this truth. It quotes Joshua in Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This applies this truth to Christians today in a very practical area of our lives. And what all this means for us as God's people is that we can be absolutely assured of God's presence and power. We can claim the great news of uh, Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no opposition that God can or won't take us through. Joshua himself is a type of Christ. Christ has already won the ultimate victory. Christ wins, or Joshua wins the victory in the promised land. Christ wins the ultimate victory over sin, death, and hell. And now uh, Christ leads us in triumph through our own battles to possess the land. He shares the spiritual resources of his inheritance with us. He gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ, everything we need to follow in obedience to God's call on our lives. We need to look honestly at the reality of the post-Christian world in which the church now ministers. We note shrinking resources, increasingly complex social questions, biblical illiteracy both inside and outside the church, and what I can only call a cultural disregard for the church. And like many churches, like most churches, we face a choice. We can continue to proclaim the gospel, or we can give in to what society expects us to look like in a post-Christian world. It's often felt like standing at the river, waiting to go into an unknown land. And I suspect that many churches are feeling this place of dis-ease that comes from an unknown and an unknowable future. The encouragement that speaks into this situation is the same encouragement that Joshua 1 presents to us. Our acts of faith may feel new to us. They might be terrifying. They might be costly. They might lead us to places we've never even imagined but they're not really new. They're only steps in a long, ongoing story of God and his people. And what really counts in that story is certain. God, his presence, his power, the story's outcome. And a certainty that God is already in that future, awaiting the arrival of his people who have the courage to believe his promises, to step forward in faith, 
by Christ's power. Now, countless people of faith have taken that step. They took that step before Joshua and Israel at the Jordan. You think of everything that happened in the first five books of the Bible. Sarah and Abraham, Shifra and Pua, those midwives of courage, Moses, and countless people of faith have taken that step after Joshua. Manoah and his wife, unnamed but not forgotten, the company of the prophets, John the Baptist, Barnabas. The history of the church is crowded with others. Augustine, Irenaeus, Hilda of Whitby, Luther, Bonhoeffer, Stott. Each of these has stepped forward with great faith or with little faith, but with a sense that it is God's story in which they walk. An ongoing story assured and accompanied by God himself. It is a story in which the true and better Joshua has invited you to join, to walk with him, not knowing where it leads, not knowing what it'll cost, but hearing the words, only be strong and courageous. Pray for that. You can go ahead and do that now, and after a moment I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we are not strong in faith and not courageous in faithfulness. There are times when we look at the world and the land is still frightening. There are still big rivers to cross. There are still people who are big and scary and live in heavily fortified cities with strong defensive systems set up against us. And we are prone to lose heart easily. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being afraid of following you into an unknown story. And work in each of us this year as we live with Joshua, the protege of Moses, as he brings us the eyewitness account of entering the promised land. Help us to be strong and courageous, not to be frightened, not to be dismayed, for the Lord our God is with us wherever we may go. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and through the book of Joshua. Draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.